Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles together to Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the last section here, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Let's uh, stand together as we give attention to God's Word. Talking this evening about gospel partnership. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. These are the words of God. Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow slave in the Lord, will make known to you all my affairs, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always striving for you in his prayers, that you may stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And, for, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Our Father in God, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than the purest honey. As we turn to your scripture, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but respond with wonder, faith, and trust through Christ our Lord. And amen. You can be seated. Well, I want to begin tonight with a very quick recap of Colossians since this is our last sermon in the series. I thought I would remind you of the key themes that we have uh, considered so far. Remember that the Lordship of Christ, His preeminence, Him being first place, is the entire paradigm for the letter. Everything centered on that fact alone. Jesus is the preeminent one. Epaphras had preached the gospel in Colossae, and a small church had sprung up as a result. The preeminent Lord had done some remarkable things. There and in the rest of the world, fruit was appearing. Indeed, this fruit of the gospel was multiplying. It was multiplying there in the region. It was multiplying in the entire world. The gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, does that. When God speaks, things happen, even speaking things into existence that did not exist before. The beginning of the letter, just like the ending here, gives us a glimpse of Paul's heart for these people whom he's never met, other than the people that are with him that are from there, Onesimus and Epaphras and, and others. Uh, he, he's never met any of these people in, at this church, but he's heard about them. And it's neat to see Paul's passion and his compassion for these, these folks. In order to combat the philosophy that had taken its toll on many members of this young church, 
Paul situates their theology in the authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. They had come to, they had come to Christ by faith uh, because of the power of the Word of God, and thus they needed to stay with Christ by faith as well. Having, having been formerly alienated from God through their evil deeds, salvation had come to them, and salvation in Christ had made them into a new creation. Accordingly, Paul's program for stopping and abolishing this aberrant philosophy was rooted in the gospel itself. Uh, we can easily take our eyes off of Christ and start looking at other things that the world may offer, and that's where the syncretistic nonsense comes in. But here, the, the way you walk with Christ, the way you stay with Christ, is to walk with Christ and to stay with Christ. You don't take your eyes off of Him. The same power that gives new life sustains new life. The same power that gives new life sustains new life. The same Lord who changes people and brings them into Himself sanctifies His people as well. That's who Jesus is. That's what He does. So laboring, striving, uh, proclaiming, all of these metaphors were used by the apostle to describe his activity in strengthening various churches, including those in Colossae. He had quite literally poured out his life in service to all of these various churches that he had been establishing through the work of the, of, of the Spirit. Paul's work, thus, was bound up in their work. What Paul was doing was connected to what they were doing. And recall earlier in the, in the book, he said that wisdom and knowledge are treasures that are hidden in Christ. Wisdom and knowledge are treasures hidden in Christ, not in the world, not in the emperor, and certainly not in the White House. If you begin with Christ, how can you end without him? That's sort of the, uh, the beat here. If you begin with Christ, how can you end without him? You cannot. Being brought into Christ, you have in baptism, you have in baptism the circumcision of Jesus. Your flesh was cut off with his flesh on the cross. The cross was like the ultimate circumcision. That's why the sign changes in the New Testament to baptism. Your flesh was cut off with his flesh on the cross. Your death is tied up in his death. Your resurrection life is tied up in his resurrection life. This king to whom you are covenantally bound is the one who has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has bound the strong man. The nations can no longer be held captive to the evil one. Jesus is the conquering Lord of all. In light of this, we have new creation clothes to wear, he says. The objective, definitive defeat of Satan, sin, and death has been accomplished and its implementation is in the world, of course, is ongoing. Uh, he has objectively and in principle defeated Satan, sin, and death, but the implementation of that victory is still something that is ongoing in history. Therefore, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. But you, but you ask, well, but sometimes I still sin. Right, do you consider yourself dead to it? Because you choosing that sin is you trying to be alive to it. But in Christ, you're dead to it now because you're dead with Him. That cross is your cross. So do you consider yourself dead to sin? Do you consider those old clothes to be gone and discarded and ready to be burned in the fire? So we must consider ourselves dead to sin. We must also consider ourselves alive to righteousness. The new clothes have been issued. Wear the proper attire, Paul argues and urges. We must make sure that the peace of Christ rules our individual hearts and the hearts of this church. 
The peace of Christ must rule in the hearts of everyone who considers cross and crown their home. The word of Christ must dwell in us richly. Notice that word there, it is, it is richly, meaning it ought to be in there in a very pure, undiluted fashion. It should be abundant. The word of Christ should be abundant in your heart. Thanksgiving in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is a mark of our service unto the Lord. Our relationships, wives and husbands, fathers and children, slaves and masters, our relationships ought to reflect the word of Christ as well. And as we saw last week, Paul urges us to be devoted to prayer, to redeem the time, to walk in wisdom with outsiders, and to season our speech so the world gets the right information. So Christ is all and in all. That's the subtitle of Paul's work here. Christ is all and in all. Function this way always. That's his point. As we conclude our study of Colossians, I simply want you to notice that what we are dealing with here are not abstractions, um, not dealing with speculative or contemplative philosophies, or even metaphysical meanderings about another world. That's not what we're dealing with here. Instead, we are confronted with very real people partnered in the gospel in a very real historical circumstance. We can see firsthand, to some degree, the uniqueness of Paul's imprisonment, the situation that's going on there. We don't know a lot other than there's a situation and he's trying to tell them about it. There's this uniqueness of Paul's imprisonment and how cooperation with others serves to advance the gospel of the kingdom in the world. How we should be able to do that. Now let's consider this passage here. Bird's eye view, the, the final part of the letter can be broken down into five sections with, with names and greetings for ten different people. We're introduced to ten different people here um, in this passage. The first section is verses 7 through 9. We're introduced to Tychicus and Onesimus, and they are Paul's messengers. We're going to dig into that as we go, but that's the first section. The second section is verses 10 through 14. That's a greeting to six fellow laborers. Paul says hi to six others here. The third section is verses 15 through 16, and that involves the brothers in Laodicea. Uh, in the Greek, you would pronounce that Laodicea, by the way, but we just get used to saying it differently. Laodicea. And also, uh, this, this woman named Nympha, Nympha, she has a house church, apparently. We don't know a lot about her, but we know based on her name, she was a she. And her pronouns were she and her. <laughs> and we also know that Paul wants letters read and circulated among them. So apparently there were multiple letters being circulated around this region. The fourth section is simply verse 17. This man named Archippus was given a special exhortation to some, for some reason. And then in the fifth section, we have the final verse, verse 18. It wraps up the letter. Paul has a signature, he has a request, and he gives him a benediction. So those are the five sections. Let's kind of walk through those quickly. The first section, verses 7 through 9, first introduces us to Tychicus. Tychicus, it says, is called our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow slave in the, in the Lord. Notice those three things, these three descriptions. He's a beloved brother, so people, people love him. He, he's someone who is faithful. He's a servant, we're here, told here, and he's a fellow slave. He's not only a servant, but he's our servant and slave. He's like us. We're committed to the gospel. And these three descriptions help us understand Tychicus 
his tremendous contribution to the mission, and frankly, his attitude of service towards it. He was no doubt a full-time minister, and he was a shepherd. He was an elder of sorts in this congregation. Tychicus, his job was to explain to the church what was going on with Paul. They obviously had some concerns about Paul. They'd heard about him. They knew he had been through a whole lot. They knew he was in prison, and they had concern and wanted to know what was going on. So Tychicus, he was to explain what was going on. He was to inform the church about the circumstances. He was also to bring encouragement or comfort from the Holy Spirit to them. I want you to notice that in verse 8, that last part of verse 8, that he may encourage your hearts. Um, that Greek word is related to what we get, the paraclete, regarding the Holy Spirit, the comforter or the advocate. Um, apparently, Tychicus was just a, a great guy. He was one who offered up encouragement to people all the time, and that's partly why he was beloved. Now, with Tychicus was Onesimus. And Onesimus, he was a former runaway slave whom Paul had sent back to Philemon, that's the letter of Philemon, and he wanted to bring reconciliation in the Lord. So and, and Onesimus had left Philemon, the master, apparently came to Christ. Uh, he was a changed man, and so Paul brings about some reconciliation with his letter to Philemon. And Onesimus is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, Paul says. So his status in the new creation has changed. There's neither slave nor free, remember? And here's an actual former slave. <laughs> who became a Christian, and Philemon was told to treat him like the brother that he is. And in fact, if he'd owned any money, Paul said, put it on my tab. <laughs> so neither slave nor free in this economy. Now both of these brothers, Tychicus and Onesimus, we see in verse 9, they were sent to inform the small church about the whole situation here. They are faithful messengers, they are ambassadors, and they are communicating with one another on this situation presumably the situation being Paul in prison. There's debate on where Paul was in prison. Was he in Ephesus or was he in Rome? It seems like most scholars think Rome. This was his house church, uh, house church, his house um, arrest, rather, uh, at the end of, book, of the book of Acts. You can read about it in chapter 28 there. So the second section, verses 10 through 14, mentions six other people. They, these are faithful brothers, friends, and confidants. Paul is blessed, blessed by them, and thus he extols them. Aristarchus, wonderful name for a child, FYI. Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner with Paul. Somebody's going to do that someday, right? Name their young boy Aristarchus. You will have nothing but kudos for me on that. He was a fellow prisoner with Paul. He sends his greeting with a letter. Presumably, he was either in jail as well because he was committed to this mission. Either he was in jail or perhaps he stayed with Paul, as Paul no doubt would have had visitors while on house arrest. But either way, he was committed to the gospel. Mark is another one. Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. He says hello, and apparently the church had previously received instructions regarding him, so Mark may have had dealings with the church in Colossae. By the way, this is the same Mark that Paul split with in the book of Acts because of a sharp disagreement that they had. They had a very sharp disagreement, perhaps on mission, strategy, we're not sure. Paul uh, and, and John Mark, they went their separate ways, but apparently restoration had taken place in their relationship. In fact, Mark is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.11 as well. 
Jesus, who is called Justice, or Jesus is Jesus in, in Greek, and this would be Jesus. Um, it's also a part, he's a part of the team. He sends their greetings as well. These men were from the circumcision, right? They were Jewish converts who had come to Christ. And Paul says in verse 11, they've proved to be a comfort. They've proved to be a comfort. These were men of great encouragement, men of comfort, um, people who Paul really adored. Note in verse 11 that these were fellow workers for the kingdom of God. That phrase there we're going to come back to. The mission of the church is the kingdom of God. Note that phrase that's there. We'll come back again later. Next on this list, we have Epaphras. Apparently, Epaphras was a native of Colossae. He was committed to Christ, and in verse 12, we're told that he's committed to prayer. His work was one of striving in his prayers so that the Colossians stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras' pastoral commitment to praying for his people is a tremendous blessing, and frankly, it's one that inspires me personally. When you think about the work of pastors and elders, uh, especially in the book of Acts, they talk about putting deacons in place to wait the tables, uh, to deacons take care of the physical needs of the church. The elders are supposed to help take care of the, of the spiritual needs of the church. And, they, and the elders and the apostles said, we need to commit our time to the word of God in prayer. And for whatever reason, we don't think that that's of value. But clearly, Epaphras was committed to praying for his people and spent considerable time doing so. And that is an encouragement. So he has a deep concern for the Colossians in verse 13. And he also has a deep concern for the fellow Christians in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Those are two nearby cities. Colossae was more of a smaller city. Um, in fact, I think I mentioned this in the first week. Colossae, is, if you go there today, it's just a mound. They haven't even excavated it yet, which apparently there are plans to do so, which is interesting. So it is probable that Epaphras met Paul in Ephesus while Paul was there for a three-year stint. Paul was in Ephesus. That was the longest place he'd ever stayed. Three years teaching and preaching and training, and apparently that's possibly where he met Epaphras. Epaphras comes to Christ. He's trained. Uh, he would have learned sound, sound doctrine at the feet of the Apostle Paul, and thus Epaphras would have been very much equipped for the work of ministry. Luke, he is the beloved physician. Remember, this is the author of the Gospel according to Luke. It's also the author of the book of Acts, sort of a two-volume uh, companion there, Luke and Acts. Luke, this beloved physician, sends greetings, and so does Damas, who apparently, by the way, this man, Damas, at this point was faithful to the Gospel, but we learn in 2 Timothy 4.10 that later he fell away from the faith and abandoned Paul. The third section, verses 15 through 16, explains the regional situation. The Colossians knew brothers in Laodicea and Nympha, a woman, she held gatherings in her home. No doubt she was exercising the gift of hospitality. The, the letter of Colossians was to be read among them, and then they were to pass it on to the Laodiceans. They were, they were supposed to read this letter aloud. Scribes would copy it. They would pass it around, but they wanted to get it to those brothers and sisters there as well. But also, you should note this in verse 16. There's a mystery letter mentioned at the end there, which may be the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. That's what many scholars think. Maybe this was the letter to the Ephesians that was being talked about. The other option is it may be a lost letter that Paul actually wrote to the Laodiceans 
and it just didn't survive history, and thus the Spirit didn't want it in the canon. Either way, regardless, the letter, the letter back in, the, in this time was a normal form of communication, but verbal reports were perhaps more important as certain information simply couldn't be communicated for fear of reprisal from authorities. So Paul has this letter, and he can't say everything, but he has these men who are going to go and then report back to the church. And then they would communicate things that perhaps they would have gotten tripped up by Roman authorities. They can talk about other sensitive matters, like usurping the Roman Empire. <laughs> the fourth section is verse 17. That is about Archippus. And it contains a rather personal exhortation. The Colossian church is to say to him, the, the church is supposed to say to him, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. So that's like Paul writing a letter to Cross and Crown and saying, hey, make sure you tell Jason to take heed to the ministry. Now, what, what was the situation here? Was he discouraged with the work of the ministry? It can be very discouraging at times, perhaps. It is possible he was going through a difficult time, and Paul urges the body to exhort him in this manner. Maybe he was going through difficulties. Maybe the church together was going through a challenge. We don't, we don't know. But the church was supposed to tell him and encourage him in this work. And congregations ought to be places of encouragement for all, but congregations should definitely be a place of encouragement for elders and ministers as well. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The fifth and final section, verse 18, concludes the letter. Note this, Paul signs the letter, indicating that he may very well have dictated it to Timothy or even Epaphras. So they would have been writing as Paul was speaking, and then they got to the end, and he writes the last part. That's probably what happened here. He requests for them to pray for him, to remember his chains. Don't forget about him being in prison for the sake of the gospel. Uh, there's this mutual bond of, you don't forget, you pray for me while I'm in prison. I'm going to keep preaching Christ because for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't care. I'm doing this. You please pray for me. Remember my chains. Remember what I've gone through for the sake of the gospel. Paul has suffered immense, immense, incalculable persecution for the sake of the kingdom. And thus, he has the right to represent the Lord. And then... Look at the last four words here. Sending them with a benediction, the entire letter can be summed up here. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. How shall we then live? Probably the first and foremost, probably the first and most obvious thing we can learn from a passage like this is the fact that gospel partnership involves real people doing kingdom things together. Um, no doubt Paul was a, a giant, a well-known man among all the churches. He, had, he was a man on a mission, and no one could stop him. No one. He would have been well-known, but it wasn't just the Paul show. Everyone had a role. Everyone had a place. These are very real people working together, doing kingdom things. And you read a list like this, and maybe, kids, this is you. Maybe you're, you're, you hear these names, and that's a goofy name. Well, it kind of is. It you know, would have been fairly normal then. But you read a list like this, and immediately you find yourself wondering who these people were. Almost like, what did they look like? You know, did Tychicus have this epic beard? Did he not? I don't know. We, we don't know. You, you, what did they look like? Were was some of them tall? Some of them short? Were, were, did they have blue eyes? Did they have dark hair? 
You wonder these, these names, we just read it and it's like, oh, okay, these guys, you know, but who were they? What did they look like? What was their personality? Did one of them walk with a limp because he escaped a lion sometime, you know? What, what was his story? Because we just get the name, we get a little bit about him, we don't know who they are. The names listed here, by the way, just like in Romans 16 where there are even more names, Paul gives a whole bunch of more names there, but they were real physical people whose graves are somewhere on this planet. Where, we don't know. They lived, they died, and in between they committed themselves to the Lord for who knows how long. How old were these men? We don't know. Some of them may have been young like Timothy, Epaphras, and Archippus. We're not sure. But these were, these were men and women who were completely given to the work of the gospel in a hostile world. Nympha has a home. Maybe she was well-to-do. I don't know. Maybe she was rich like Lydia in Acts 16, who Paul met um, in Philippi. Like, what, what's, who are these people? But she opened up her home, and they, had, they held their church gatherings there. You know, and Paul's in prison, and some of them are going with him on the journey, the multi-day, week, month journeys for the sake of the gospel. They, these folks had families. They had businesses. They had food to cook, just like we do. They had houses to clean. They had clothes to wash. They had friends to spend time with. They, like us today, lived in a culture that was headlong into paganism and unrighteousness, yet they were committed they were committed. The Word of God had transformed their lives, and nothing else would ever be the same. They were fellow servants and slaves of Christ. Christ was their master. They were doing whatever He told them to do. They were faithful and beloved brothers in the church. They were real people plodding along day after day, building families, proclaiming God's Word, doing business in the market, and they were demonstrating to the world the legitimacy of kingdom living. Their lives just looked completely different than the world. Additionally, we learned that they were committed to prayer and the proclamation of the Word of God. Prayer, which is mentioned several times in the book, was and is a central theme of ministry, and it should be for us today as well. Never, ever underestimate the power of prayer. Men like Epaphras were dedicated to praying for the work of the gospel, that it would have its full effect, spending considerable time interceding and praying for others, which is what elders and pastors are supposed to do, but everyone's called to that task. All of us should be interceding for our brothers and sisters in whatever God has called them to do. When the Word of God transforms the heart, it also transforms the mind, and it also transforms your hands. All human activity, your emotions, your will, your desires, your thinking, etc., all human activity belongs under the authority of the Word. Regardless of outcomes and the possibility of death always lingering, we have here the early seeds of gospel ministry being planted all around the world. It was a massive undertaking. Think about the 11 disciples who were told by Jesus, all right, take the land. I'm sending you out. Take it. It's yours. Looking around at each other, like, there's 11 of us. We're supposed to take the world. I know this guy. He's kind of a bozo. Real people, real problems with a real Christ who changed their lives. But the seeds were being planted all over the world. It was a massive undertaking 
Yet the Spirit had been advancing from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God was advancing by the preaching of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Regarding verse 11, the phrase kingdom of God, I told you we'd come back to it. Here we are. Regarding that phrase, it's clear enough that Paul saw the work of evangelism, um, discipleship, and church planting to be a type of work that's situated within the kingdom. He makes this connection for us here. God has, in Christ, established the kingdom on earth. In principle, the kingdom is here, and the means by which the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven is through the regenerating power of the gospel. So we can say, without being incoherent, especially in America today where things are slightly disheveled, (laughs) we can say the kingdom of God is here, but we can also say the kingdom of God is advancing. And, and only God can make this terrible-looking defeat look like a victory. You know, that, that's the, the church's attitude should be, things are really bad, we got them where we want them. And we preach Christ into it. And we apply the gospel. We, we take biblical law as our, our blueprints and say, this is how it should be. Come to Christ, live this way, be blessed accordingly. Otherwise, be judged. And that's how the kingdom advances. He makes this connection here with the regenerating power of the gospel. Moreover, it is the word of God that must be proclaimed because it is the word of God that has the power to transform hearts. I I tell you, going into places when you're sharing Christ, sharing the gospel, and it's very easy to default into this like rationalism where if I can just persuade them with the nice, handsome, tidied arguments that they'll come to Christ. We have to remember that people come to Christ because the Word of God is powerful unto salvation. We're going to delve into that next week. That's what changes people. It's the power of the Word of God. We, we just have to be faithful in proclaiming it in, in various ways, in various modes. We'll talk about that in a second. But that's the power Where Christ's authority is reflected and aligned here on earth, the kingdom is made manifest. So how do we know the kingdom? What what does it look like? Does the kingdom, this invisible kingdom, so-called, how is it made manifest? It's made manifest when Christ's authority is reflected. When, When churches and families and cultures are structured in such a way that honors Christ the King, follows His law order, we realize, okay, this is, this is what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom is an orderly place that encompasses all things. And why do we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? Because in heaven, the will of God, the kingdom of God, is present, active, living, and it's moving. So we want that to be the reality here. And when that happens here, things change. Things look different. As head of the church, Christ's kingdom power is being extended through the body of the church. And this is an important point. The kingdom, Jesus, he he says this earlier, Paul does, Jesus is the head of the church. Now, he's the head of all things, no doubt, because he's the creator and sustainer. But as the head of the church, his kingdom power is to be made manifest through the work of the church. That's the mission. We are the people of God who are to to labor to those ends. We are the kingdom ambassadors. We've been called out of darkness so that we might labor in the kingdom of light. Wherever the light shines, the kingdom breaks through. Wherever the light shines, the kingdom breaks through. In Paul's mind, then, we have a holistic ministry of the gospel, which includes every area of life. Men and women opening up their homes. Preaching and teaching. Um, Think of evangelism. 
Raising your children. Children, you having a Christian education and learning how to have a biblical worldview. All of that. Evangelism. Discipleship. The discipline of prayer. Um, the arts and sciences. Remember Luke? He's a physician. Messengers and benefactors. You have financial donors. Uh, you have baptism. You have the Lord's Supper. You, all of these things that are markers of the church, all of that and so on, there's so many more things we could say, all of it is a work of the kingdom and everyone's gifts ought to be used for this great end. Every area of life, changing diapers, doing dishes, mowing the lawn, sweeping the floor, laying the concrete, every area of life is to be informed by the kingdom and transformed in how it is accomplished. You think, is there, this has kind of a, been a debate amongst theologians and, and people, you know, is there a Christian way to bake a cake? Because wouldn't the most ardent atheist be able to bake a yummy cake? I say yes, there is a way to bake a Christian cake. Because you're doing it for the glory of God and not the glory of self and the good of others. There's a connection between this tangible object that we have made and the motivation that we bring to it for the end that is something that's other than ourselves. All of life is to be informed by the kingdom. So every activity we do at your jobs, in your homes, every activity, activity is to be informed by the kingdom. And then when you're transformed and your heart's made new, then how it is accomplished, and where this accomplishment is supposed to go, that is being informed by the totality of the kingdom. Christ is king, plant a tree. <laughs> In one sense, the military metaphor is a great example of how the church militant is to function. You have frontline battles that require frontline workers. You have division of labor. Not everybody's on the front line, but not everybody's back at headquarters either. You have a whole lot of a whole lot of strategy going on from front to back. Um, the ecclesia, the church, is to function like the barracks with training and nourishment along with encouragement and instruction. There's a triage corner in the barracks, what we call Christian counseling. There's a corner for learning how to be a businessman, how to train and educate your kids, how to manage your household, etc. When the church assembles as she does, we have a whole host of people with varying degrees of gifts gathered for worship, prayer, fellowship, singing, hearing God's word proclaimed, and we do this on Sunday, of course, this being the Lord's Day. And we do this, by the way, whenever we want because the calendar is Christ. It's not like you're forbidden from gathering together and having people in your home on Monday night. That's against the rules here. <laughs> Nothing like that. The calendar is Christ. So we give all of our time to him, whatever we can, whatever we can. Which means that as we function as the church, we must be using our gifts. We must be using our gifts. Some of you have administration gifts that need to be utilized. Others um, have the gift of discernment, which means we should very much want to know what this person thinks. Still others have the gift of evangelism, exhortation, faith, giving, healing. Some have the gift of helps, hospitality, knowledge, leadership, mercy, um, prophecy, serving, teaching. Some have the gift of wisdom. These are the spiritual gifts we see, by the way, in a few different places. But the gifts that the Spirit has given to the body are for the purposes of, one, glorifying God in humility, because they're His gifts He gives to the church, so we glorify Him. 
Second, the maturation and the education of the church. The gifts are not to be squandered in your own little head. They're to be given and poured out into the church. And third, it's for the advancement of the kingdom. Far too many Christians don't know what their gifts are, and thus they don't exercise them in the body. In fact, that may, maybe that list was new to you. You'd never heard it before. What is this spiritual gift thing you're talking about? If, if this is something you'd want to talk about, don't hesitate to talk, to talk with me later. Now, in light of all of that, we need to consider something else. Well-ordered churches committed to the gospel of the kingdom in the, in the world is what we desire. We need more, not less of this, of course. Some churches are so well-ordered that they are of no real use for the kingdom. <laughs> Uh, in other words, there is little to no cultural engagement because they believe themselves to be an end in themselves. In this case, the church, thinking itself to be rather astute, has folded in on itself, believing that the only thing that matters is the brand or the product or getting people in the door. The gospel is cleverly disguised in modern psychobabble and thus is ostensibly ameliorated or tailored or trimmed up. It's not really improved, but they think they're trying to improve it. You know, the gospel needs help, so let's have fog machines. <laughs> because this method of doing church has infiltrated our culture in a widespread manner, the church today is viewed as just another place to go. So people, people generally, I've found this, I've been in that world, and it's a, it's a terrible place. <laughs> people are reticent to add another activity to their plate, and thus the church as a marketing machine becomes another event vying for everyone's attention. You know, how do we get people in the door? How do we get people in the door? Well, do we have to light our pants on fire? Let, let's try that, you know. And, and it's always like, we got to do this, the, the Easter egg helicopter drop. That, that became big many years ago. And let's celebrate Jesus' resurrection by bombing children with eggs, you know. And they think of all of, the, it's all the, this creativity, this creativity. And what we're saying is the power of the gospel in and of itself, the word of God needs help. It needs help. It's not enough to just open up the Word and proclaim Christ. So we have to get fancy. And you wonder why you can't get churches engaged in the work of abolition, whether it's the abolition of abortion or the abolition of statism. We can't talk about that. Why? Why can't we talk about it? Because that's not how we do things. We're scared to touch those things because we're busy lighting our pants on fire. But when we read a passage like this, I want to try to put you there in this historical situation. When we read a passage like this, we get a different sort of attitude about things. It's sort of stripped back and you think, what, what really matters here? What really matters for the kingdom? Rather than being a comfy place to prop up one's feet, the church is an assembly of transformed men, women, and children set apart for the sake of the gospel in partnership for the kingdom. Suddenly one is working with someone they might not have gotten along with prior to salvation. You enter the barracks and you realize there's a whole lot of things going on. What is happening in this ecclesia, this church? What's happening? People are exercising their gifts, serving one another, praying for one another, helping provide meals for someone who may need it, um, you know, enjoying time at the park together, you name it. Uh, what is going on? All these things are happening. People are training for life. How about that? Peering over to the left, you see a map on the wall, and suddenly you realize there's a global campaign underway. We're going to take America, and then we're going to get Canada, because they really need it too. 
And then we're going to keep working. We're going to work in Africa. We're going to work in, in China. We are going to work in the Southern Hemisphere. We're going to see the, the Hispanic community come to Christ, which it is growing, by the way, rapidly in South, <laughs> South America. We're, we're going to take the world. And here's where we've been. We've been everywhere, but there's more work to do. And we're going to take the world. And you walk in and you realize, wow, I'm a part of something bigger than what I have going on. Not that what you may have going on is not important at all. But that's why we pray. That's why we encourage one another. That's why we help one another. When someone's in need, we reach out and we help. When you're brought into this assembly because of the finished work of Christ, applied by the Spirit to your heart, the center of your being, you are thus equipped to serve our Commander and Lord. You are challenged to grow. You're challenged, hopefully, at Cross and Crown in your thinking and how to have the mind of Christ, how to understand His Word, how to take what we have in Christ and then apply it. Um, we're challenged to serve one another. And sometimes it's hard to do that because sometimes we're strange. We're challenged to exercise our gifts, to be humble, to not ask for anything but to give. Not that you can't ask for anything, but giving, serving, laboring towards one another. And get this, you get to spend your energy, gifts, money, time, all of it in service to Christ and neighbor. You get to do that. You get to do it. What do you have in this world that you have not received? One of my favorite questions Paul asked. What do you have? The answer is nothing. Nothing. What do you have that you have not received? Kids, when you were born, you came with nothing. That's you, your, your, your hands clenched and perhaps screaming coming from your mouth. It's all you brought. You brought nothing. Your parents clothed you. They're feeding you. You have what you need because Christ is sufficient. And parents, we're, we're the same way. We didn't bring anything to this world. We have nothing that we brought into this world. None of it. All of it is a gift. All of it is, is because God is good. What we have, we have because God is a good Father who gives good gifts. Consequently, we are invited to enjoy the reconciliation we have in Christ as it motivates us for kingdom work. Changed into the likeness of Christ, we now have what we need to work and keep the garden world. We can now give even the smallest things in service to Christ. Remember the widow's might? She had nothing, but she gave. But what was she giving? with one little coin, she was giving her heart. That's what Christ wants. Momentary things done in service of our Lord pay dividends for eternity. Slaves of Christ are servants of one another. When we are full of grace, we are overflowing with service, and that's what it means to be the people of God. The, the fellowship that we have with God in Christ by the Spirit means we have the fellowship necessary to be united together. Unity in Christ is the basis for unity in the body. Unity in Christ is the basis for the unity in the body that we have. When we, when we, take, off our, we take our eyes off the former, we lose the latter. When you start looking at people through the eyes of the flesh, through the eyes of sin, jealousy, envy, covetousness, when you stop looking at the unity you have in Christ and you start looking through things like that, no wonder you'll have a pitiful day a pitiful week, and your relationships will be strained because of it. When Paul signs off with the words, grace be with you, he does so as a reminder that the only fortification against 
false teaching and vain philosophy, everything the world tries to throw at you. The only fortification is the grace of God in Christ. Grace brought us into the world, and it is grace that sustains us. Grace was implanted in the heart, and it is grace that awakens us to the glories of God. Grace, by the way, is a shorthand way of expressing the totality of the kingdom of God as it makes its way into all the nooks and crannies of the world. I love what Richard Bernard, he said, he writes, A godly man prefers grace before goods and wisdom before the world. Grace before goods, wisdom before the world. Grace is our preference in gospel partnership because grace is the engine of the church. Grace is the engine of the church. We receive grace and we give grace. We breathe grace and we bleed grace. And by this very grace, we stand in the promises of Christ as we seek to serve Him together. Remember Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Christ is our supreme good. He is our sufficient good. He's our suitable good. And He's our sanctifying good. Uh, Thomas Watson writes, Christ is beauty to adorn, gold to enrich, balm to heal, bread to strengthen, wine to comfort, salvation to crown. Christ is all. He is everything. Christ is in all. His presence is total. And when we we realize the seriousness of what we have in Him, we are thus blessed to serve Him and thus blessed to serve one another. Dear church, as we close Colossians here, take in Christ and give Christ. That is our duty. Take in Christ and give Christ. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Colossians. We're grateful for the men and women of Colossae 2,000 years ago who labored with the Apostle Paul, who helped establish churches, who helped establish a beachhead for the kingdom. We thank You for their ministry. And Father, we ask and pray that You would strengthen our church here. Strengthen us for the great task of faithfulness and service as You, Christ, are our Master and we are Your slaves. We pray that Your Spirit would bring conviction where conviction is due. Help us to take in Christ and to give Christ. We have nothing other than Him. Everything that we have, we have by Your grace. Help us not to hang on to it so tightly. Help us not to have the attitude that our works and our might and our brilliance and our wisdom is what gave us all of this. Because it's not true. We have only because you have been good to us. So help us to have that perspective, Lord, and teach our children to have the same perspective that they can rely on the promises of God and not in their own perceived wisdom. We glorify you now as we come to your table. In Christ's name, amen.